Well, in the year 112 A.D., a man named Pliny the Younger, he wrote a letter to the Roman Emperor Trajan. Pliny was a civil servant and a local magistrate in the area which is called Bithynia, which is located in what we would now identify as northern Turkey. And he had a problem. Christianity had been spreading like wildfire throughout the region. In fact, Christianity had so thoroughly penetrated the region of Bithynia in 112 A.D., that Pliny writes and complains to the emperor, saying that the temples are destitute and the pagan religion is being deserted. So Pliny, to stop the spread of Christianity, took to rounding up professing Christians and torturing them. And here's his account of one set of Christians he tortured I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved and excessive superstition. What I'd have us note here in Pliny's comments to the Roman Emperor Trajan is the way he classifies these two female slaves who were believers. He calls them deaconesses. Now he's writing in Latin, which means then that he has to translate from the Greek. And in the Greek, they would have been called diaconus. So what Pliny does here is he transliterates from the Greek into Latin, but yet he says that the diaconus, these women, were deaconesses. So the point here is that Pliny is not just referring to these slaves as Christian women. They are that. But he is also referring to them according to their office and to their position which they held within the community of the local church where they lived and served. Now, it's on the strength of a, of a text like this that the great 19th and 20th century biblical scholar of Princeton Seminary, B.B. Warfield, he looked at this text and he found in it corroborating support for interpreting Romans 16.1 as follows, I commend to you Phoebe, deacon of the church of Sancreia. And Warfield's argument runs like this. He, he argues in a backward fashion. He says, if by as early as 112 A.D., which is just historically a stone's throw from the end of the apostolic era, this word, diaconus in Greek, is being translated deacon as an official title and office, then he says, then it's most reasonable to conclude that it would have been used in that same technical and official sense in Paul's day. And so based on texts like this, uh, Romans 16 and 1 Timothy chapter 3 and and extra-biblical resources, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America has determined that women as well as men may serve in the office of deacon. Now as soon as I state that, I want to immediately add this is not some kind of slippery slope decision leading to women in eldership since the testimony in the very same uh, paragraph 
where it affirms that women may serve as deacons, it says in the very same paragraph, the office of elder is, rest is restricted to men. So I want to make it clear that it's not a concession to feminism, liberalism, or wokeism. It is the denomination's position that it's based upon Scripture and is confirmed by church history. And one reason why the Reformed Presbyterian Church can make this kind of a clear stand is because of the distinction that it makes between the office of elder and the office of deacon. You see, uh, it says of the diaconate, it is neither a ruling nor a teaching office. Its exercise is under the oversight of the session and its function is administrative. In other words, the Constitution, Reformed Presbyterian Church, goes out of its way to clarify the nature of the office of deacon. And it says emphatically and clearly, it is an administrative office. It is not a teaching office, and it is not a ruling office. Now I understand that not all Reformed and Presbyterian churches make that same distinction. And so a good case could be made that it would be improper for such denominations which don't make that kind of clear distinction between the diaconate and the eldership, it would be improper for them to include women within the diaconate because it would put them in a ruling position. But the Reformed Presbyterian Church does not. And that is why, when the case was appealed to the Reformed Presbyterian Church Synod in 1888, it ruled 93-24 to to uphold women deacons saying, your committee would reply that such ordination is, in our judgment, in harmony with the New Testament and with the constitution of the apostolic church. You see, they said, we can rule overwhelmingly. One, because our conscience is clear. We have described and clarified the office as an administrative office. And then we've looked to the New Testament, and we've looked to extra-biblical uh, supporting documents within church history, and we found ample evidence that there are indeed indications in these that women could serve in a particular role in relation as deacons, or sometimes called deaconesses. And so this morning, I want to examine the biblical case for this. As a minister in the Reformed Presbyterian Church who is under vows to uphold and maintain our Constitution, I want to explain and defend it so that care about the qualifications for what we read here in verse 11 for women, that those who are listening will understand that the apostle is referring here at this point, I would argue along with our denomination, that is referring to women who may serve as deacons, and he is supplying the qualifications for their service. I'm going to divide this in two parts, a biblical case for women deacons and qualification for women deacons. And so the biblical case for women deacons begins here in the text according to our constitution at verse 11 where the verse says, Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate and faithful in all things. I want to begin, it may feel very picky, and some of what we're going to do here is going to feel like we're descending into the weeds. It may feel overly technical, but one of the things that we have to do, because the topic is disputed and because it's hotly debated, is sometimes we have to get very specific. We have to be detail-oriented. And one place where we must begin examining this passage is the word likewise. And it may feel that it's not very weighty. When you begin to understand how this word likewise functions in the text and the context, you'll begin to feel the force of it. Because this word likewise is a structural 
indicator. It is a structural indicator that Paul is continuing with his exposition of office. You see it used back in verse 8, for example. Notice it says there, deacons likewise. Well, why is he using it there? The answer is because in context, Paul is expounding upon offices and their qualifications. So he begins with offices in verse 2. An overseer then must be. And now we have the office of elder referred to and the qualifications. Then at verse 8, we see the pivot away from the exposition of the office of elder and its qualifications to the office of deacon. But Paul uses this adverb likewise there. And the point is to signal that he has transitioned away from one topic underneath this broader theme of church office. He has now transitioned away from eldership to the diaconate. He hasn't changed topics. He's changed uh, within the discussion of church government now. He's, He's transitioned from one office to the next. And so, when you read this word likewise, it does two things. It signals continuity and parallel. Continuity and parallel. The continuity is he's continuing to speak about offices. And parallel is now, in verse 11, he's saying, I spoke of deacons likewise in verse 8, and now he's making a differentiation and distinction within the office of diaconate. And so, that's how we would read this text beginning with likewise. And you come to the next word, women. And I think this is where the weight of the discussion lies. The burden for the case is often made right here with this word, women. And the one thing I can say, which is a unifying statement at this point, the outset of our exposition of the term, is that Paul's use of this term here, gune, which could either mean wives or women, Uh, Well, either way, it implies that women were helping in the church, doesn't it? No matter how you take this, at the end of the day, everyone agrees that the reason for bringing this up is because Paul assumes women will be participating in the service of the church. Something seems then to be official here. So we start with how some have taken this, and some have taken as wives. In fact, you may have a translation this morning that reads, likewise, their wives. The New um, International Version, the King James Version, the New King James Version, the English Standard Version, all read that. They say, wives. In fact, it says in those translations, their wives, right? And, and almost everybody would take that to mean the possessive um, pronoun their refers to the deacons. Because that's who Paul is talking about in context, right? Deacons. And so the translation, or rather the interpretation that tends to go with this translation, is that now Paul has transitioned from speaking about the deacons to speaking about the deacons' wives. Now, what's typically implied in that interpretation? It is implied within that interpretation that the deacons' wives are not also deacons. They're deacons' wives. And the reference is there because the apostle is suggesting somehow that, well, that they're going to be involved in the work of what their husbands are doing. 
Now, let me just see here that, that Calvin seems to hold this view, but with a nuance, because he says here, Paul means the wives both of deacons and bishops, for they must be aides to their husbands in their office, which cannot be unless their behavior excel that of others. Now, I find that to be a very interesting comment, because Calvin is saying at this point, in this particular text, that the there cannot be limited to the deacon, but it also refers to the elder and even the pastor's wife. So, in Calvin's way of understanding this, the qualification for a man to be a pastor or an elder or even a deacon, well, it's about his wife in part. Is she qualified? Well, I would say most people don't hold that now. Most people in the Reformed world do not hold that. Most people in the Reformed world would say, no, this is limited narrowly to the deacon's wives. Why do they argue that? Number one, because they say that Paul doesn't make reference to marital qualifications here in verse 11 to this person he speaks about, right? If you were to take this generically as women there would be no marital qualification for them in their service, whereas when he speaks of deacons, he says they must be a husband of one wife. When he speaks of pastors or elders, they too must be the husband of one wife. So people will say, well, without the marital qualifications, it just seems different from the rest of the context. Number two, um, the context points to deacons' wives because verse 12 goes on to talk about deacon being married and having only one wife. And so the qualification then for a deacon is not just that he's the husband of one wife, but the additional qualification of the deacon that his wife must be dignified, and not malicious, gossip, and temperate, and faithful in all things. So these would be read under that situation, under that interpretation. Verse 11 would be read as qualification for a man to serve as a deacon. Who is his wife and how does she be? There's a third reason why. Uh, people would tend to take this women here, or gune, as wives. And that is because they say, well, it looks like Acts chapter 6 settles it. It looks like Acts chapter 6 settles it when the apostles say in verse 3, select seven men from among you. Okay, We would all agree this is the foundation of the diaconate. This is the apostles under Christ under the inspiration and direction of Christ by His Spirit, they're raising up the diaconate at a critical moment in the life of the church. And now they're instituting, by Christ's authority, a second office to go alongside the office of elder or pastor. I'll include that of the diaconate. And they would say, look, select seven men. And the word aner there, it is argued, can only be translated men. And you can even see that translation reflected and that interpretation reflected in verse 8, for example. It says, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, right? Does everybody have that in their translation? Look at verse 10. These men also must be first tested. The only problem, I don't care which Greek translation or Greek text you look at, the word men is not there. It is not in the text. It must be read in the text. And for the life of me, I don't know why it's not italicized, because it isn't there. The other problem with the strictness of that interpretation is I can show you four texts off the top of my head in the book of Acts where aner clearly refers to men and women. 
So it isn't locked down as airtight as it would seem, but it's that kind of approach to the text and and, an earnest attempt to interpret Scripture with Scripture that many would say when you come into verse 11, the word gune here shouldn't be translated women, it should be translated wives. But let me just complicate that interpretation just a little bit further, and it's this. Uh, There's no there there. Again, you go to any Greek text you want, anyone you want, and you cannot find the word there in verse 11, because there is not there. It is an interpretation of the text. And so then, we're uh, we're left to ask the question, why is the Apostle Paul singling out the deacons for having to have the additional qualification of wives who meet these standards? After all, the, the wife isn't being called to service. She's not being called to the diaconate on that interpretation. That's their interpretation. I don't find anything in the text that would forbid it. But, but on that interpretation, what's being said is verse 11 is really not qualifications for women. It's qualifications for the, the, the male deacon. His wife must be a certain way. And so, eventually what tends to happen in the discussion is that people will say, and I've had a lot of people say this to me before, they say, well, isn't it obvious? Isn't it obvious that that if a man, if he's married, uh, that his wife will participate with him in the work of the diaconate? They'll say, "I, I can understand why... Uh, in the case of an elder, his wife wouldn't participate. <laughs> but they would argue with me and say, well, isn't it obvious that a woman would participate in the work of the man as a deacon? And I would say, no, it's not obvious. And the first person this is not obvious is John Calvin, who says that it can refer to both. So, no, it's not painfully clear and obvious to me that the nature of the work of the diaconate would naturally just include... Um, the deacon's wife, if he's married. And by the way, there, there's nothing in the text or anywhere in the New Testament which require a deacon to be married. So it's it's not patently obvious to me for all kinds of contextual reasons why this should be translated wives. And so I come back to what should be the, the standard word used here, gune, women. That's typically how it would be translated, women. Now, here's, um, here's a response that, that you'll often read. They'll say, well, why does Paul then interrupt his discussion of diaconal qualifications to talk about women? If we translate it women and not their wives, deacons, wives, they'll say, but why is Paul interrupting himself? And the answer is, why do you say he's interrupting himself? Wouldn't it be simpler and more clear and more consistent with the context to pay attention to the adverb likewise? And to see that in verse 8, the Apostle Paul is introducing into his exposition the office of deacon not specifying gender qualifications, but moral and spiritual qualifications. And then when he comes to verse 11 saying, likewise, now differentiating that within the group of deacons, there are those 
who would be women, and they must have certain qualifications. And then he goes on to verse 12 to speak of male qualifications, right? So the argument would seem to fit very clear if the Apostle Paul, if likewise indicates that verse 11 stands in continuity with, that is in parallel with verse 8, well, the subject of church office hasn't changed. All that has changed here is the Apostle Paul is making a distinction within the office when it comes to gender. If one who is a deacon is a woman, she must have these qualifications, and then you come into verse 12, and if he is a man, well, he must have these. Now, there's one other objection that typically comes up here, and it's this. Why doesn't the apostle just make it clear and say, deaconesses? See, now in English, that's how we would discern that this would be feminine, right? Instead of male, we would say deacon and then female deaconess, like we would say Mr. or Mrs., And the answer is because there's no Greek word for deaconess. That's the truth. There's no Greek word for deaconess. At least not in Paul's day. It was coined later, I believe, in the 4th century. But in Paul's day, there was no female term for deaconess. It's It's masculine in gender. And the word is deacon. And by the way, the word deacon is used in the New Testament to refer both to men and to women. And outside of the New Testament, in official contexts, In pagan religion, it also is used to refer to male and female officers. So just because it's masculine and gender doesn't mean that it can't be applied to women. And so here in our text, it would seem to me that since there's no need to turn away from uh, this being women, and there's no need textually to say that Paul can't be referring to women as deacons, I don't see why we can't just maintain the word women. And I was struck by this as I was reading through Matthew Poole's commentary on it. I was struck by the fact that Matthew Poole concedes that women deacons could be in view because he says some women had the deacon's office conferred upon them. And then he goes on to cite Romans 16, 1 and Phoebe. Now, I cite Matthew Poole because the last time I checked, nobody accused Matthew Poole of wokeism. No one accused him of feminism. No one accused him of liberalism. He's writing in the 17th century. He's one of those old, reliable, dead white guy commentators. So the idea to bring that into the discussion and say that the person who holds this view is automatically be regarded as, as a liberalism, as a liberal and a feminist, you're not reading the Bible, first of all, in its context, and second of all, you're not reading in connection with church history, as we'll show you in a moment. So as I look at all the things in our text, the parallel nature of it, Paul has not stopped talking about office. As we think about the word women, it could easily apply to women if they could serve within the diaconate. I see no reason why we'd have to opt for the other interpretation, their wives. And even if you do adopt for the other interpretation, their wives, it in no way implies that they can't be serving as a deacon. Because again, structurally, the text shows us Paul hasn't left the topic. So, what do we do here? 
Well, listen to one report, and this is from, and I'm not saying this to denigrate the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in any way. I have great regard for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church of Amer- in America. They are um, a church with which we have fraternal relations. Um, they studied this matter back in the 80s, and there was a, um, there was a, 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 a handful of very reputable scholars that studied the issue. And as they studied the issue, there became to be a division among them. Four or five of them wrote what is called the majority report, and one wrote the minority report. Now, the one who wrote the minority report happened to be my beloved professor of systematic theology at Westminster Seminary, Dr. Robert Strimple, may he rest in peace. Brilliant man, faithful to the word of God, dotted every I and crossed every theological T you can imagine. A man of precision, character, and honor. He wrote the minority report, but here's what the majority report says. Having denied the ordained status of women of this verse, it's all too easy to say no more. That is a shame. Because whether these women were wives of elders or deacons or both, it's clear that Paul had deaconing women in view. They were recognized as special assistants to the ordained officers of the church. Phoebe is a classic example because of this association. Their spirituality had to be commensurate with the diaconate which they assisted. Furthermore, there are aspects of diaconal ministry which can only properly be executed by women. These focus on personal private needs unique to women and needs in the area of hospitality. Modern day diaconates need to employ the gifts of women and even consider publicly recognizing some as officially associated with the diaconate diaconate in their unordained status. <laughs> so, so here's this report written by eminently gifted men who, who, who do a thorough job of examining the topic, arguing against women deacons. At the end of the report, come up with women deacons. They, they literally say that Paul has in view here in 1 Timothy 3.11, deaconing women. That's number one. Number two, they say there are aspects of diaconal ministry which can only be properly executed by women. And to that side, yes and amen. What man serving in the church hasn't said, I wish there was a godly woman here to handle this problem. There, the, the nature of the, of the issue of the church is that quite often what is needed is a godly woman to come deal with the situation because it pertains to other women and children. And the man is not equipped to deal with that situation. Not only that, I find it absolutely amazing and stunning that having rejected every single solid exegetical argument for women deacon, they go on to propose a woman deacon, essentially. Calling them a special assistant, giving them a quasi-official status, and saying they should be publicly recognized and officially associated with the diaconate. I say, well, why not just follow the word of God? I don't mean to be jarred in that sense, but it's a lot easier to recognize that Scripture does speak of a category of women who serve with a title in a particular way in the church. Now, the other passage that would work, and it is, is parallel to this, is, is Romans 16. Romans 16, verse 1. And if you already kind of hold the view after reading 1 Timothy 3.11, well, this isn't going to undermine your view at all. Because here the Apostle Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Sancreia, and you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. You help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. 
Now, what's the apostle doing here? He's speaking of a particular person, a woman called Phoebe, and he calls her what? Diakonos. Diakonos. The very word which we get deacon from, the very word which is used in 1 Timothy 3.11, he says, I commend to you, Sister Phoebe, Diakonos of the church which is at Sincrea. Now, the English translation I'm reading from is making an interpretation here when it calls her servant. It can be translated servant. But it can also be translated in an official way, deacon, like it is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 8 and 11 in Philippians 1, 1. And as I've already said, it can refer to women doing deaconing service in the New Testament. I can show you texts where it's literally used that way. We've also said that outside of the New Testament, in Paul's day, officials who are both men and women had this title applied to them. So by using the word deacon, he doesn't have another word at his disposal. But, but listen to these stalwart commentators. And I think it's important to quote from them Not because we hold our view because someone says it, but because at least the discussion should not become uh, biased as if you hear it or think through it or evaluate the arguments as they appear that you're automatically a liberal or a feminist or woke. Charles Hodge. Phoebe was a deaconess. It appears that in the apostolic church, elderly females were selected to attend upon the poor and the sick of their own sex. Matthew Henry, diaconon, a servant by office, a stated servant, not to preach the word that was forbidden to women, but an acts of charity and hospitality. John Calvin, in the first place, he commends her on account of her office for she performed a most honorable and most holy function in the church. I've already referred to B.B. Warfield, who regards this as as deacon. So four of the most highly regarded Reformed expositors you can talk about, who've never been charged with a hint of liberalism or feminism, all say that this text points to women, or rather Phoebe, as a deacon. But why? Why? Is there something you can look at in the text which would support that? And the answer is yes, form. This may feel, again, picky. It may feel like you're descending into the weeds a little bit. But I want you to notice the language here of verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant. This is a grammatical construction in the original And when it is used in the New Testament, it regularly refers to somebody holding an official status. Listen. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Acts 18.12. Gallio, who was the proconsul of Achaia. Acts 24.10. Felix, who was a judge to this nation. The precise grammatical construction is used and each of the instances it is used to identify somebody functioning at a particular time and in the performance of a particular office. Grammatical form. Rhetorical form. 
Paul describes Phoebe as a servant of the church which is at Sancria. Literally, this text reads, servant of the church of Sancria. And what it is, is rhetorical expansion for the sake of effect. He doesn't just say she is a servant. He doesn't just say she's a servant of the church. He says she is a servant. She is a servant of the church. And she is a servant of the church in a specific location, Sancreia. And so it has a way about semantically of communicating uh, official status. Like if you were to say, John, servant of all saints of Brea. You wouldn't assume that meant that I was the one here to uh, vacuum the floors and make the coffee. You would understand contextually, it is an official way, uh, it is a way of describing the official status or title. So, Paul uses two things, form, grammatical form, and rhetorical form, and then the reinforcement in verse 2. It doesn't feel as strong at the outset. You receive her in a manner worthy of the saints. She is a sister in Christ. She is a blood-bought believer. And she is serving the church. Number two, he says, Help Phoebe in whatever matter she may have need of you. They are commanded by the Apostle Paul to come alongside her in her work. And it's not some sort of menial volunteer work. Phoebe has not come to the church of Rome to clean it. Phoebe has not come to the church of Rome to make up the bulletins and to pass them out before church. Those are wonderful things to do. Those are things that have to be done, but that's not the work. She is giving meaningful work, so meaningful that the apostle says, whatever she needs, you provide it. And then finally, He describes her in this way, for she herself has been a helper of many. The word here for helper has been a factor, which means that she had tremendous financial resources. And she was a person who had given herself to the distribution of funds to help people. You know, she's from St. Crea, which was a a seedy little port town. A place where all others would agree would have been overrun with the poor, the sick, widows, and orphans. And that's where she hails from. And that was the place she deaconed and served the church. And on account of that, the apostle commends her to the Roman church. So uh, Romans 16.1 in every way presents a powerful case because diaconin is used here, it should be used in its official sense of deacon. Servant, grammatical, who is a servant is a grammatical form which reinforces official Office holder of the expansion, servant of the church of St. Crea, is, is semantic expansion for the, t- the sake of effect, the commendation, the latter part in verse 2. All of it reinforced one thing, that this is an official status or title. And that's why people like Calvin, Henry, Hodge, Warfield, and others look at this and say, the translation should read, Phoebe, who is a deacon. And some would add deaconess, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment. So this is the exegetical case. This is the biblical case that would be made. And one of the, what I want to do now is just take a moment and think about this and place that case within the context of the history of interpretation. And, uh, you know, if you go back to the, to the ancient church, there's zero dispute about this. There's zero. In both East and West, women served as deacons. That's not disputed. 
over time in the West, deacons began to be associated with the bishop and be viewed as the bishop's assistant. And so they were doing things which were not diaconate in nature and male qualifications began to be required and it just passed off the scene. But in the East, it wasn't that way. In the Eastern churches, you can go back and look at constitutions of the church. You can look at the canons of the first and the fourth ecumenical council and they have references to the women deacons and to the work which they did. At the time of the Reformation, this was revived. And here John Calvin sets the tone as he distinguished between deacons and deaconesses. It's best for you to listen to Calvin's own words. He's commenting on Romans 12.8 where the apostle says, He who gives with liberality and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. This is Calvin. Since it is certain that Paul is speaking of the public office of the church. Note that. This is not volunteer service. This isn't a form where you can sign your name to it if you like. This is the public office of the church. He says there are two distinct grades within that office. Unless my judgment deceive me in the first class, he designates the deacons who distribute alms. But the second refers to those who devoted themselves to the care of the poor and the sick. Now here's Calvin's comment that really grasps hold of your attention. Women could fill no other public office than to devote themselves to the care of the poor. If we accept this, there will be two kinds of deacons. One to serve the church in ministering the affairs of the poor, and one for caring for the poor themselves. This is John Calvin, and this became the order of the Church of Geneva. That within the diaconate, there were male deacons who were serving as the administrative portion of the diaconate, and there were female deacons who served the women and the poor and the orphans. Now, Calvin, you need to be aware, bases his position also in part in 1 Timothy 5.9, where Paul talks about taking the, the widows on the role of the church. And he would regard those as the deaconesses of the ancient church. But this was his view. He literally held to women deacons or deaconesses. And that view prevailed in the church in Holland, in the church in France, and in the church of England. And in fact, in the 17th century, this was vigorously debated at the Westminster Assembly because they wanted, there was a, a, a large chunk of the divines who wanted to include the office of deaconess within the order of the church. Well, due to all kinds of decline in the church, it faded away until the 19th century and was revived in Scotland, in the Church of Scotland. One of the front rank 19th century Irish Presbyterian theologians, go look him up, and whatever you can find by Thomas Withrow, read it. Here's what he says in the form of the Christian temple, which defends and explains Presbyterian government. The case of Phoebe, a servant of the church, which is in St. Crea, proves that only females were eligible to the diaconate, but that one at least filled that office with the approval of Paul. Clearly affirming that Romans 16.1 and 1 Timothy 3.11 refer to a woman serving as deacon. It was revived in America in the 19th century. Alexander McGill, professor of church history and pastoral theology at Princeton Seminary from 1850s until the late 1880s, he wrote a book on church government. He devoted an entire chapter or section on the deaconess. And he went on to say that Phoebe, 
Romans 16.1 is the first named deaconess of the church. In the northern and southern Presbyterian branches of the church in the 19th century, the office of deaconess was established. I, I go out of my way to, our, to recount the historical narrative and the case here because, uh, yes, we are Presbyterians, and that means what? We live and die on the principle of sola scriptura. If the Bible doesn't teach it, we don't believe it, and we don't practice it. We believe the regulative principle applies to worship, and it applies to the government of the church. Okay? Our understanding of Scripture and Scripture alone is the basis of what we do. But as we affirm that principle, we don't say we read the Bible alone. We read the Bible with the church. And what we see when we read the Bible with the history of the church is that women were recognized to serve in the church in a particular sphere. Now, I think that for the conscience of some, and I think we had to be careful here, I think for conscience sake, for some, that there are those who would say, I can go along just fine with having deaconesses if their role is the service of the women and the poor and, uh, the, and, and the, the orphan. But they have a hard time going further with fully identifying that with the male deacons in some ways. And I could say that's a debate that we should have. That's a debate that I think we're open to. I think that's even where there is historical warrant for saying, as Calvin did in Geneva, he distinguished between the administration of the purse and the administration of the mercy part. He says women can serve only in that. I think we should have that discussion if it would settle consciences and it would eliminate debate in the church. And if we define the diaconate precisely as the Reformed Presbyterian Church does, as not rule and oversight. If we kept it clear like the Word of God does, I think if it would settle consciences, we should talk about that. There's some warrant for that. I personally know of some congregations in the Reformed Presbyterian Church who have commissioned women to serve as deaconesses, particularly and exclusively to the women and to children in the congregation because they wanted to make sure that consciences were settled. You know what? Very many people say they don't agree with the position and end up there too. Remember our friends in the OPC. We should designate an unofficial office for this because everybody knows. That's true. We do know. We do have a sense that there is a need. And so the question is not whether we agree if women will somehow serve. The question is who will do it and how will it be done? I think that Jesus Christ as king and head of the church has not left us in disorder. I believe that the word is clear enough. And it's summarized ably in these words, I commend to you Phoebe, deacon of the church, which is at Sincrea. So that's the argument. What about the qualifications? I can go through those fairly quickly. We have, first of all, in verse 11, dignified. Dignified, the word means honorable. Worthy of respect, noble. The kind of person that, the kind of woman that serves in the diaconate must be a person of gravity and substance. Someone who everybody would regard as a dignified person and spiritually mature. Not malicious gossips. The word here is diabolus, which means devilish. In fact, 
when Paul uses this word almost, I think, everywhere else, it refers to the devil. But, but here, it's clearly not devil. He's not saying that they can't be devils. He, he's talking about how their tongue is used. Not malicious gossips. So Paul differentiates here. He says that, um, uh, he says that the woman who would serve as a deacon can't be a malicious gossip. And he's warning about the danger of having a big mouth and gossiping. In fact, he uses something similar. He talks about how older women are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips. How the tongue is used is an index of the heart. Temperate. The word here means restrained. Often it uses, a, it literally refers to sobriety. I think that could be incorporated here, but I think the main thrust of the word here, when it's used as a personal qualification, is it's talking about your behavior. Is it restrained? Do you manifest the evidences of, of self-control and moderation and clear-mindedness? That, that's what's in view here with this qualification. And then finally, faithful in all things. This kind of sums it up, doesn't it? The quality of a person that makes others feel warranted to trust them. In other words, they've seen the pattern. They've seen the repetitions of the behavior and the life of the person so much that they say, yeah, that's the kind of person I believe we can count on to fulfill this particular ministry and role and service. and so, Trustworthiness, reliability. And in everything it says, in, in marriage if she's married, in, in family if she's a mother, is she honorable to her parents? How does she treat fellow church members? How does she, how does she conduct herself if she has a job in the workforce? Reliable, faithful in all things. But you see, these are very powerful qualifications. And if any... Uh, if any sister or woman of God is, is looking at this verse, here is, is a, here's a wonderful summary of what it looks like to be a maturing, godly woman. Dignified, not malicious, temperate, faithful in all things. This is what it is to be Christ-like. This is what every Christian woman would seek to strive after. Just as I continued to drive that point home, we looked at the qualifications for office, for, for the eldership, and we said, men, if you want to be a person of excellence and show yourself to be Christ-like in your life and your behavior and your attitudes, this is what it looks like to be uh, growing into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Sisters in the Lord, if you would seek to follow after Christ and pattern your life in a way that exalts His name, and shows you're growing in Him. Here it is. Dignified, not malicious gossips, temperate, and faithful in all things. These are excellent qualities. They are things that ought to be strived for. And so, people of God, we conclude by saying Christ would have His church served. Right? Christ would have His church served. That's the bottom line we're thinking about. We're talking about church office. Christ would have His church served. And to accomplish that, Christ has appointed offices in His church. Christ has appointed offices in His church to accomplish the service which He has appointed in His church and the kind of service which His people need. And so He's appointed the, the office of elder and He has appointed the office of deacon. And this is an excellent office. It has excellent qualifications. 
And so now having expounded this text in a way that the Reformed Presbyterian Church would understand it, one of the things that we walk away with then is that these are peculiar qualifications then for a woman who would serve in the office of deacon. But now when we think about more broadly the qualifications for the office of deacon, when we're hearing this, all of us can hear it together and say, would Christ have me to serve Him by serving His church? Would Christ have me serve Him by serving His church? And so that's the challenge I leave before you again as I walk away from our text. I mean this in all sincerity. We need servants in this church. Whether you bear an official title or not, I guess in some measure is not all that important. But the fact is, we need servants in this church. And so we think about the service we need. We look to the Word, because Christ tells us what He has appointed for it. And as we think about that appointment, and as we think about the qualifications, I would urge you this morning, people of God, to consider, is Jesus Christ calling you?